Mike. Glad you could join me for some great seafood. Me too. Wait, why are you dressed in fishing gear? You said we were going out to catch great seafood, right? Yes, to Popeye's. Do you even know how to fish? No, I thought you did. Oh, yeah, I could catch pretty good seafood at Popeye's. Let's go. Let Popeye's do the fishing while you enjoy our delicious signature seafood. Get Popeye's flounder fish sandwich or shrimp tackle box before they're gone. Limited time at participating U.S. restaurants. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 282. kid who, who kind of lived in his head and did love to read and talked about how important it was growing up that his parents left, you know, newspapers laying around and there were books around. I think he valued that. He valued books. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. It's the podcast dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. I'm Jeff Brown and believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. I created this podcast as a way to help you not only narrow this ever-important reading list, but help bring you key insights and valuable ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. Today's author is a biographer, and though I've summarized at least one biography here on the show before, I've never interviewed a biographer. After reaching out in the Read to Lead podcast Facebook group and elsewhere for feedback, the response was overwhelmingly positive. Yes, Jeff, consider the occasional biography. Well, in a moment, you and I will be joined by Brian J. Jones, author of the book, Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel and the Making of an American Imagination. I'll ask Brian to share about how Dr. Seuss dealt with getting less than stellar grades while in school, something I can certainly identify with, how a specific invitation forced him to examine his own writing process, the tremendous impact his mentors had on his career, and much, much more. Coming up later this month on the podcast, in case you like to read ahead because you're an overachiever, is the book Bet on Talent, How to Create a Remarkable Culture That Wins the Hearts of Customers by D. Ann Turner, who spent about three decades at Chick-fil-A, and the High Achievers Guide, Transform Your Success Mindset and Begin the Quest to Fulfillment by Mackie Musavi. Brian J. Jones is an acclaimed best-selling biographer of three books on some of the world's most iconic creative figures, including Jim Henson, the biography, which is also a New York Times bestseller, and George Lucas, A Life. Uh, for almost 30 years, he has served as a speechwriter for elected officials at all levels of government, including 10 years in the United States Senate. His latest book, released earlier this year, a book that I loved a great deal, is called Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel and the Making of an American Imagination. Welcome, Brian, officially to the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff. I'm so happy to be here. And maybe throughout the course of, of this conversation, we might learn uh, how to be better leaders uh, through studying Theodore Geisel's life. Uh, I think there's a lot to, to take away from from studying him. And, and I want to start by asking you, what prompted you to choose him to to write about in the first place? Well, Dr. Seuss is sort of sort of in the uh, you know in my lane, as people say. Mm-hmm. Well, on, on other subjects I've done, I tend to do you know sort of these iconic creative thinkers who have taken a genre, a format, and done something with it that nobody thought of before. Whether it was Jim Henson with television, whether it was George Lucas with film, or whether in this case it was Dr. Seuss with children's books. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I really one of my favorite things is I was this 
kid growing up who you know would watch every behind the scenes documentary and every DVD special feature on how things work. I love knowing how the creative process works and how these projects evolve and where these people get these inspiration. So it was it was a it was a, a an ideal subject once we stumbled on it. It was uh, it was not one of these that I you know finished up the, the George Lucas book and said and next I shall move on to Dr. Seuss. <laughs> uh, it actually it actually took a little bit of conversation and trying to figure out who sort of fits in there. I mean it's one of those things when you do biography you know your next one is always the hardest question because you're always trying to find something that seems consistent mm. uh, with what you've done in the past, um, but also maybe improves on that <laughs> if, if possible. <laughs> so uh, so it was, it was one of these, it had a conversation. And once we landed on, it was a conversation I had between my agent, and my editor. And once we said it, it was one of those where we all sort of, you know, smacked our heads and said, my God, why didn't, why didn't we start with that one? That one seems so <laughs> obvious. Uh, well, give give us a sense of, of what his childhood was like. Was it the typical childhood? Were there some unique things about it? Well, I mean, one of the things that's very interesting about about Dr. Seuss's childhood is that it's in, in in a lot of ways it's not extraordinary in the sense that you don't really have a sneak preview of things to come. Mm. Uh, you know, he's not Steven Spielberg who at age eight is filming his trains crashing into each other, and you know everyone's like, "Wow, this kid wants to be a director." Um, Ted Geisel was he was the son and grandson of very successful German brewers. He was third generation. His mm. grandfather immigrated over, and his father was born here. Um, but you know, very successful family. Family. It was kind of assumed maybe he was going to move into the business. You know, not a not a fantastic student, an interested student, but not a fantastic student, but liked to draw. His parents encouraged that. His father, once prohibition, you know, was sort of <laughs> sort of on the horizon. His father was always sort of looking for the day job and ended up being the superintendent of parks in Springfield, Massachusetts, where Dr. Seuss was born. And and Ted Geisel, you know, young Ted Geisel had had a lot of memories of going down to that zoo there in, in the park there in, in Springfield and looking at the animals and drawing the animals and, you know, trying to do his interpretation of the animals. As his wife always said later, Ted doesn't really have a sense of anatomy. He just kind of puts the joints where he thinks they need to go, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, very Susian. But, uh, you know, it was, it was a relatively happy child. His, his mother had, was the daughter of bakers. Uh, and he remembered her singing songs about what flavor of pies that she had heard in the bakery. And she, he loved her sense of rhyme and her sense of song. So I think that you can see a little bit of, you know, the what becomes Dr. Seuss in the way his mother sings and the way his mother took a real joy in rhyme. And the other thing that I think is is important in, in his story is, you know, remembering that he's the child of Germans who spoke German fluently in his household. Mm. Uh, and I think sitting there, you know, I always, I always envisioned him while the adults are talking and drinking and having a great time in the living room, him sitting there at the top of the stairs, listening to that conversation going on and hearing the way that language is so, you know, so beautiful and so funny mm. and how, if you want to, you know, explain something, you don't add words to the sentence, you add letters to the end of a word <laughs> and you make these words very long and descriptive and interesting. So I, so I think even hearing, you know, I think that German ear, I think even had a little bit of an, an effect on the way he viewed and used and played with language. Mm, that's very interesting. You mentioned that he was an average student. I think most of his GPAs were on par with, with mine throughout uh, <laughs> high school and, and college. How did he tend to, to cope with that? Uh, what, what, did, what did he do in his free time? He wasn't doing a lot of studying, in other words. Yeah, he wasn't, you know, and, and to his father's, I think, disappointment at times, he wasn't really an athletic kid, not an athletic linker. His, his mother and father were both crack shots with rifles and, you know, were winning awards and medals and setting his, I think his father actually had a world record 
record in mm. shooting at one point. And and Ted was terrible with a gun. And and even when he got into the uh, the service during World War II, he said the best thing he could probably do with the service pistol was throw it at someone. <laughs> so um, you know, but he was this kid who who kind of lived in his head and did love to read and talked about how important it was growing up that his parents left you know newspapers laying around and there were books around. I think he valued that. He valued books. And uh, he also loved to accompany his father when he could. Uh, his father sometimes would take him down to the brewery and because they were in Massachusetts, they would actually harvest their own ice mm. out of frozen lakes. And he tells a great story once about going out there with his father and uh, this poor fellow had fallen through the ice and uh, didn't, it was he was French, didn't speak any English. And they hauled him out of the ice and he's shivering off to the side. And then all of a sudden the, the guy says in French, mon chapeau, he realized his hat had fallen off and ran back and jumped in the water to go retrieve his hat. <laughs> uh, and, and young Dr. Seuss just thought this was hilarious, thought this was a great story. So, so there's a lot going on in his childhood that you can see sort of shaping his sense of humor and his outlook and his love of language and his you know love of drawing. But again, you can't really see his trajectory yet at that point. Mm. Now, I would imagine, speaking of trajectory, I think we start to see it here in this next, uh, next phase. I would imagine most people aren't aware, I certainly wasn't, that he was a pretty successful marketer and, and ad man early on in his career. How, how did that come about? What were what were some of the, the campaigns that he worked on? Right. So so when he was, uh, you know, it was really important to him in college to draw and write for the humor magazine there at Dartmouth. And that's sort of where he started to hone his skills as a writer and artist and ends up at Oxford um, and doing anything really but studying there. He's drawing in his notebooks. And a young woman sitting next to him who he ends up marrying later said, you know, somebody like you who can draw like that shouldn't be aspiring to be an English professor. You should be an artist. So he agrees with her and ends up marrying the girl. And he and Helen move back to New York and he starts, he sort of hangs out his, his shingle to be a, a cartoonist. Mm-hmm. And this is back in the day, it's hard to believe this is the 1920s, the sort of gilded era of uh, New York, really wonderful time, when you could make a career drawing one panel cartoons for Vanity Fair, you know, and Judge Magazine, things like that. So he's making a pretty decent living as a cartoonist. He becomes the regular cartoonist for Judge, in fact, which is sort of a, sort of a, maybe, there's not really anything like it now. He's kind of a mad magazine in a way. But he draws a cartoon at that time that has a knight laying in bed and there's a dragon sticking its head in through the window. And it's a very sort of it's not it's not even a great dragon. It's a very Susian dragon. It almost looks like Maurice Sendak drew, drew it. It kind of has like a dog's head almost um, <laughs> sticking its head through the window with its head in the knight's lap. And the knight is sitting up in bed saying, drat it all. And here I just had the place sprayed with flit. And Flit was a kind of bug spray of the era. And Dr. Seuss talked about how he had flipped a coin. It was either going to be Flit if it was heads, and it was going to be Fly Talks if it was tails, and it being Flit. This turns out to be a very fortunate flip of a coin because that cartoon appears in Judge magazine, which is then picked up in a women's beauty salon by the wife of the ad man at McCann Erickson, the real McCann Erickson, if you watch Mad Men, um, (laughs) who's in charge of the Flit campaign. And she says, this is the greatest ad for Flit you'll ever see. And so they end up hiring Dr. Seuss to be the ad man for Flit Bug Killer. And that's the beginning of his career in advertising, uh, you know, all, all traced all the way back to that flip of the coin. And he ends up doing ad work for Flit for almost 17 years, uh, actually creates a sort of um, a where's the beef, you know, a sort of viral campaign that everybody knows. It's an easy joke for people to reference everyone gets with Quick Henry the Flit. And his cartoons are all variations on a theme for that. But that's really how he's earning his living uh, in the first part of his career is he's doing those cartoons. But it's really advertising that's paying the bills for him. He's 
he's very good at it and picks up other campaigns. Flit is owned, owned by Standard Oil, and he picks up other campaigns from them, including ad campaigns for motor oil for boats. And he creates something called the Seuss Navy, which is just basically an excuse to have a big party um, <laughs> that, that Standard Oil is paying for. Um, but, he's, but he's a really brilliant, really intuitive ad man. Now, some might assume that to go on to later write books for children, that one has to have children of, of their own. But but he and, and Helen never had kids, something that, that Ted was asked about in interviews throughout his life. What's, what's, the, what's the story there? Well, I, you know, I was really, really interested in that as well, because, um, you know, every, you would assume that somebody who writes such successful books for kids must have this great affinity for children, must love children, must have been surrounded by children, his own grandchildren. And the reality was that Helen could not have children. Mm. So they didn't have children of their own. And Ted's view of children throughout most of his life, and I don't want to call it ambivalent, but his response was usually something along the lines of, you know, I like I like children the way I like people. You know, I like some, I don't like others. Um, his his Pat response on it was, uh, you have them all entertain them. You know, I think there was some sadness in the fact that they couldn't have children. Uh, he dedicates one of his early books. I think it's the 500 Hats of Bartholomew Covens. If you look at the front dedication, it says to Chrysanthemum Pearl, age 89 months. And if you do the math on that, as I did when I was researching this, you'll find out that 89 months before that book came out, um, Helen had had her ovaries removed and couldn't have children. So so they created Chrysanthemum Pearl as sort of a, a almost like a joke of a child in a way. Mm. So if they were at parties with other young couples who were starting to have children and they would start to tell stories about their kids and doing these great things, they Ted would usually say, uh, well, Chrysanthemum Pearl just baked a delicious cake mm. made out of oysters. You know, they would always have these stories where Chrysanthemum Pearl could one up anything that your child had done and would sort of shut that conversation down. Uh, so, I, so I think it was a way to sort of deal with that in a funny way. But I think there was a I I think there was a little bit of heartache there early on, which is why, again, you create this this fictional child. Wow. You know, he enlisted in the Army during World War II. Talk a bit about that experience. How, how would that go on to to shape his his future? Yeah, so so enlisting the army is actually critical to his development as as an artist. Um, by the time he gets in the army, he has a few books out. Um, his first, you know, he he, he does uh, and to think that I saw on Mulberry Street, and he's got Bartholomew Cubbins, and I think he's got about six or seven by the time World War II rolls around. And he actually stops producing children's books in 1940 or so mm-hmm. to become an editorial cartoonist with PM Magazine, with PM Newspaper in New York. And so he's he's drawing these sort of very progressive cartoons for for the newspaper but he was absolutely a believer in us being prepared for world war ii Mm. and he's 39 years old by the time he enlists in the army and he used to joke that you know well i was drawing all these cartoons talking about why we should enter the war so i guess since i got us into this i should at least fight (laughs) so so he enlists at age 39 and he's put into the army but he's recruited by frank capra who's in charge of a unit of the signal corps out in out in hollywood actually (laughs) so dr suits gets stationed at what they called fort fox it was the old fox lot out in hollywood and capra recruits him with these big ideas that he said what we tend to forget is that a lot of uh, people in the army and in the military at that time were, you know, farm boys. They were not necessarily literate and couldn't read. Mm. And so no matter how well intended the military might be about producing these very useful pamphlets on how you protect yourself from malaria by applying, you know, mosquito repellent, um, a lot of these guys couldn't read those things. Mm. So so Capra hires Dr. Seuss, you know, tasks him with creating and storyboarding and drawing and writing these cartoons about private snafu. And if your listeners might know, snafu is an acronym for situation. Situation normal all up. Uh, and so Private Snafu would educate usually by showing you what happened if you did it wrong. 
But Capra does something very important for Ted. He has him bring his scripts in and he says, I'm going to go through your scripts with a blue pencil and I'm going to underline in blue pencil your plot. And if I hand you the script back and there's no blue pencil in here or there's not very much, you have a real problem. Mm. And so what Dr. Seuss learned from Frank Capra was conciseness was the, you know, getting to the point, getting that plot really drove everything. So it was like getting to the plot quickly, making plot drive everything you do. So it was a really good lesson there. But the other thing Capra does that's very brilliant is he pairs Dr. Seuss with a civilian at that time over at Warner Brothers to help with these cartoons. And he pairs him with Chuck Jones, who at this time is not the legendary Chuck Jones we all know and love, who's responsible for what's opera doc and all these great Bugs Bunny cartoons that are classics. But he's sort of an up and comer at that time. Mm. And so it puts them together and they have really similar sense of humors. They speak the same language. But it's Chuck Jones who shows him the way animators storyboard and how, you know, they don't they they draw just the big movements and pin them up on the wall and try to decide what the story is. And you can actually see it on the wall and move panels around or discard something entirely or move something from the beginning to the front. That's a really important skill that Dr. Seuss would then adapt as his own and use for the rest of his life. He would go to his office, to his working studio in California for the for the next 50 years and you would see panels of his books pinned to the wall. It was the way he worked after that. So he could see it at all times. He would always have a book in play on his wall. So Capra and Chuck Jones are very important to his story and they both taught him different things about storytelling. As I read that, you you can't help but think how differently his life might have been after that had he not enlisted in the army. Absolutely. I mean, again, Capra, like teaching him not to be so windy. Uh, and then, then you've got Chuck Jones, who's like really teaching him about the value of storytelling. And and again, it's sort of taken, he, he's doing what Capra preaches. Like Chuck Jones is very concise, very quick, and even had, you know, animation down to a science, which I think Dr. Seuss could appreciate. But it's that storyboarding that really mattered to him, really mattered throughout his career. It was the one thing that really, I think, set his work apart from almost anybody else. I was fascinated, too. And I think my favorite chapter in the book was chapter eight to read about the impact that accepting an invitation to participate in a 10 day conference would have on Geisel, how it forced him to think through and examine his his process. Can, can you speak to some of that? impact, Brian? Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled that you picked up on that, Jeff, on that chapter in particular, because I think it is a pivotal moment, mm. not just in his story, but I think in, you know, children's literature for all time. Uh, I, I think it's a watershed moment. You know, I actually had the thrill of getting to go through his handwritten notes for this lectures, which mm. was really, as a biographer, those are the kinds of things you love when you see, you know, what they're writing down and scratching out and erasing and furious with and writing dark and underlining. And it's, it's you can see his mind in motion. So what, so what this is, is in 1949, I think it was, he was asked to come teach a course on writing for children at the University of Utah. It was a you know a seminar, a series of seminars and lecture. And so it was the first time he ever put down in writing how he does it, what he thinks is important about writing for children. And it's the first time you've seen him start to realize and sort of start to come to terms with the idea that writing for children really matters. Mm. Um, I call that chapter a good profession, which is some words of his. You know, I think he finally realized writing for kids was a good profession. But one of the things that he kept telling those students in that class is don't get cute with the young readers. <laughs> you know, don't try to fool them with your your fancy parlor tricks and your big words and think because they will see you coming from a mile away. Mm. Kids are the hardest readers to write for because they're smarter than you are. You know, they ha- they haven't learned to be cynical. <laughs> you know, they haven't learned to, and and they will see you coming. And so and what he kept telling them is, you know, don't try to get fancy with them, but I think even more important is he kept telling them and warning them, do not write 
down to them. Mm. Speak to them at, eye to eye. Um, and he also kept saying the worst thing you could do to a kid is write them a book that you think they should be reading. Uh, he called those the bunny books. And that was the worst thing he could call a book because it meant you were intentionally setting out to write an adorable child story that they that you thought as an adult they should enjoy. And was usually the worst kind of tripe that no kid was ever going to enjoy. Mm. And the one thing he kept telling these these kids, these you know young writers in class is he said, you know, look at your competition. Look at something like comic books, which Dr. Seuss was not necessarily a fan of. And this is, you know, this is at the <laughs> when you're starting to get the horror comics and the crying comics and so on. Mm. But he was telling him, you know, go look at the competition because they're holding their attention when most kids' books are not. And the reason they do that is because they're fast-paced and they're bright and they have plots. There's <laughs> that word again. They have plots that are moving forward that kids want to follow. So, so he was really trying to get them to think differently about the way – you wrote for children. I mean, again, it's a it's a a huge watershed moment in children's literature because before that, children's books didn't really necessarily have a lot of personality. You had a couple of of writers out there who had personality driven characters. You know, you had Ferdinand the Bull. You you, start, you were starting to get Curious George. You were getting Eloise, but there wasn't a lot out there that was breaking away. It was all sort of you know these very sort of stilted stories that again were trying really hard to be cute and to teach lessons and and were doing that overtly. And Dr. Seuss was telling these people, you know. Don't do that. You can teach them a lesson, but don't beat them over the head with it because, again, they'll see you coming. Another really sort of enjoyable thing to read about was some of the origins of books that we've that many of us have, have grown to know and love. It was fascinating to read about the origins of the cat in the hat I, I never knew or the Grinch. Can you tell us uh, about some of those stories? Yeah, the, the, the cat in the hat is, is, again, this is another watershed moment in both his career and in children's literature. I think this is, I mean, this is the moment when he sort of finally becomes what we think of as Dr. Seuss. Mm. It, it takes him a while to finally get there. And what people don't remember, um, I think, because we always, in, you know, Dr. Seuss is fully formed in our imaginations by now. We all see him as sort of that, you know, he's got the wise old man with the big glasses and the beard, which he didn't look like until very late in his life. But he really didn't make it big until he was in his 50s. Advertising was what was primarily still paying his bills on up into the 1950s. And he had dabbled a little bit in screenwriting and things like that. Uh, but he wasn't really doing, you know, he couldn't really earn enough to do this full time until The Cat in the Hat. But The Cat in the Hat does two big things. One is it's a huge hit that lets him now write for children full time. But something really important happens with that book. And this, again, is something earth shaking. It's in 1954, John Hersey, the Nobel Prize winning novelist, had written an article in Life magazine doing what we tend to do about every three to five years. Uh, even now is we sort of wring our hands and we say, what's the matter with kids? Um, you know, why aren't they reading? Why can't they read? Why is literacy down? And, and who do we blame for that? And, you know, nowadays we do it's video games or whatever, you know, their phones. In 1954, they said, you know, one of the problems we have, the reason kids don't don't read is because they don't want to read because the Dick and Jane reading primers they have in the classrooms are awful. Uh, they're boring. The art is terrible. Nobody wants to read the lives of Dick and Jane and their lives of quiet desperation. You know, I mean, it's like any he, any he sort of like said aloud, why can't Dr. Seuss draw? at least a Dick and Jane story. Mm. Well, Dr. Seuss doesn't end, up, doesn't end up drawing a Dick and Jane story, but what happens is one of the publishers for children recruits Dr. Seuss to write and draw a primer for children, similar to Dick and Jane. You know, And, and what he tasks Dr. Seuss with is he says, you know, write me a book that a first grader can't put down. But the catch he's got in this is we have to remember, with, even with as boring and terrible as Dick and Jane might be, <laughs> there's a pedagogy 
in that in those stories. Mm. They use a educator approved reading lists, depending on grade level for first graders, it's about 300, 350 words. And, you know, there's no plurals, there's no possessives, not a lot of adjectives. So mm. it's a lot of nouns, and a lot of verbs. And so Dr. Seuss takes this reading list and all he'll do at the moment is promise to play with it. Well, he stares at this list for about a year <laughs> before he figures out what his story even is. And what he says at one point is, I, I was going to look through it one more time before I threw it across the room. But if I found two words that rhymed, that was going to be my story. Mm. Not quite true because he actually actually found, I think, tall ball first. And that's not a great story. Um, but he did find cat and hat. And so once he found cat and hat, he knew that this was his character, mm. but he still didn't know what the cat and hat was going to be doing. It took him another year of staring at that list to write that book. But what he does in that book using that restrictive word list is really extraordinary. And this chapter, I believe I called a literary straitjacket because it was the equivalent of, you know, not having not, not having a lot of arrows in your quiver is you, you'll notice him repeating a lot of a lot of words, a lot, you know, a lot of phrases get repeated. Sometimes he'll rhyme words with themselves. Mm. And then there's one point in the story where the cat gets on a ball and starts juggling this wide assortment of things. And it's an opportunity for Dr. Seuss to just download a lot of things off this list. You know, he's juggling a, a little tiny man and a little boat. And so, you know, so, so it lets him get a lot of the words on this. So Dr. Seuss ends up using about 280 of these words in that book. And this book, once he publishes it, is an absolute phenomenon. Parents love it because, again, it's not Dick and Jane. It's a book parents want to read. And kids want to read it because it's fun, because it's funny. The cat is always – look at the way Dr. Seuss draws the cat in there. His feet are very rarely on the ground. He's always moving. Mm. It's an exciting book. Um, it was a very different kind of book. So Dr. Seuss essentially took Dick and Jane and along with Thing thing 1 and Thing 2, swept them out of the classroom. Mm. So, it, so it's a huge moment in kids' books right there because it's sort of changing the way – it took a while for educators to come around with these. They didn't necessarily like the cat in the hat. They were happy to stick with Dick and Jane. But it's, you know, it's a big moment in that educators really saw you could you could take these pedagogies, these wordless, and do something a little more exciting with them. And it's a book that parents really loved. It was, it was the book that when the kid asked if you would read it to him, parents didn't do as we sometimes do when we have to read a book for the 900th time, you know, didn't roll their eyes. They, they would read the cat in the hat. So it was his first big bestseller, Let Him Finally Become Dr. Seuss Full Time. That comes out in 1957. The other thing that's so astounding is that's also the same year that How the Grinch Stole Christmas comes out. Mm. Um, I mean, most people would be thrilled to have one iconic book, one iconic character in their career. He has two in the same year. <laughs> and this one's not subject to that um, that sort of, you know, that pedagogy. He could use a lot more words in this one. So that one's, this is what he used to call, he would call these later the big books. But the Grinch was sort of born out of, um, you have to remember, Dr. Seuss made his money in advertising. And he has this moment in Christmas about 1956, I think, where he catches a sight of himself in the mirror shaving, he says, the day after Christmas, going, who is this scowling back at me? And he says, oh my God, it's, it's Ted Geisel. Uh, and he said, you know, that was when he started to realize that there was something going on with Christmas that was making him disappointed. And it turned out to be the commercialism, which mm. you again remember, this is a guy who made his career telling you that Christmas actually did come from a store. Uh, and the Grinch's big epiphany is that no, maybe Christmas he thought <laughs> was a little bit more. Mm. So it's actually Dr. Seuss, you know, struggling with his own. It's almost an existential crisis for Dr. Seuss that he gets into this book uh, about the meaning of Christmas and how it's not just about things. But another gigantic book, two in the same year. I think that's really incredible. Mm. Well, growing up, I, I don't remember a December that didn't include anticipating the animated version of The Grinch. How did it come about for The Grinch to be turned into 
an animated special. So Dr. Seuss was very skeptical about handing his creations off to anyone to muck about with. Mm. Um, and he was very skeptical of television for a while. Just, you know, he didn't like the format. He thought it was, he, he was one of those people that kind of thought it was the idiot box. So, you know, people had asked if they could do his, his adapt his books for animated television. And he said, no, because, you know, what people are going to do is they're just going to start going through my books and, you know, we'll be done with that very quickly. So I don't, I don't want to do that. So it took the right person to ask him, I think, first of all. And he was approached uh, in the mid-60s by Chuck Jones, mm. who, who by now is the Chuck Jones that we know and love. He's done a lot of these classic cartoons throughout the 50s. And he actually brings the mountain to Muhammad, almost literally. He comes out to the mountain <laughs> that, that Dr. Seuss lives on in La Jolla, California, and sits down with him and convinces him you know, to let him do an animated version of one of his books. And it's around, you know, it's the early part of the year, 1966, so he says, you know, we can have this done in time for Christmas, so let's make it the Grinch. And again, that's one that Dr. Mm. Seuss is, is very nervous about because of all his characters, he always says he likes the Grinch best. <laughs> so, so he's very protective of the Grinch. But, you know, his term and condition is that he really wants to be involved in it. He, he wants to control as much of this as he can. But Chuck Jones makes him, you know, some quality assurances and says, you know, most half hour shows only use, you know, if they, if they use uh, a thousand drawings in five minutes, we're going to use 10,000. You know, I mean, it's really a, a, a matter of quality. Room. We're going to bring in these beautiful painted backgrounds and mm -hmm. brings in Maurice Noble, who is his go-to guy on, uh, you know, the does those beautiful painted landscapes we see in the Roadrunner cartoons, for example, to do the backdrops for, for the Grinch. And the two of them spend the year bringing the Grinch to life, storyboarding together, designing the way the character looks, because you have to remember coming from 2D off the page, making them sort of move on a screen. You have to think about the way he looks from every direction. So lots of conversations about that. And the other thing we forget is if I ask you what color the Grinch is, you can probably answer that, right? Mm -hmm. Green. Green. Go back and read the book. Uh, he's not colored in the book at all. He's green because Chuck Jones made him green. And what Chuck said later was he's green because that was the color of every rental car he drove while going out <laughs> to visit Dr. Seuss that summer. So, so you know, the, it's it's a real collaboration between the two of them. And one of the things that Dr. Seuss made sure he could also do was write the songs for it. Dr. Seuss loved writing songs. He loved writing lyrics. Uh, and so he really, you know, he really hunkered down and had a blast writing those lyrics. And that was one of my favorite, again, another one of my favorite things to get my hands on in the archives was those, those rough drafts of him trying to come up with these songs. And a lot of times he would write on a page, you're a, and then he'd write just a long line and he didn't know what the Grinch was going to be. They were going to call him something and, you know, trying to fill out these horrible names and these horrible, <laughs> these horrible words and come up with, you know, really gross terms, uh, really having a lot of fun with this. But so he came up with those classic songs. You're a mean one. Mr. Grinch is written by Dr. Seuss. And, and um, you know, that wonderful sort of fake language that the who's saying at the beginning, that's, you know, Chuck Jones called that Seussian Latin. <laughs> So he really had a lot of fun writing the lyrics and they spent a lot of money on this cartoon and the networks and a lot of the early critics thought they were crazy for it, but it ends up going on the air and being a gigantic hit and becomes a Christmas staple. You know, like you said, it was must see TV. I mean, even when I was growing up, like we, you had to we would circle it in the TV guide. You, you had to you had to be ready for it. But it was the one that you did not want to miss. Probably that one and a Charlie Brown Christmas are the two big ones that nobody wanted to miss. Well, give me give me your thoughts on on this Geisel quote, uh, one that uh, that stuck out to me. Kids who have no interest in books are usually from slob parents who themselves <laughs> had no interest 
in books. <laughs> slob is such a great Dr. Seuss word. Like there, there's a, one of the chapters, I think I even called the slob generation because when he was in college, you, they called themselves the slob generation. Like they weren't, you know, they were, they were so disinterested for him. If children weren't reading part of that responsibility, as far as he was concerned, fell on the parents. Um, and he always remembered his own parents leaving the newspapers around and the books around and, um, you know, encouraging him to read. So, you know, the slob parents were the kind who, as he even said at one point, would rather be drinking, you know, martinis in the afternoon. And as he often said, and who wouldn't? It's more fun. He, yeah. He really thought that, you know, p- part of the responsibility for children learning to read didn't didn't necessarily fall on the all on their teachers. It was also the parents responsibility to do that. So, you know, again, like calling something a bunny book was always a, you know, a high uh, um, insult for Dr. Seuss. I think slob is one of his uh, big insults as well. Like if you were a slob parent, he, he really didn't like that. Uh, you had a responsibility. You had a role in your child's intellectual curiosity and in their in their desire to read. Well, you've uh, hinted at some of this, but uh, I'm curious to know uh, maybe a little bit more detail about what the journey was like for you writing this book. What were some of your personal takeaways? First of all, I, I didn't know a lot about him going into this. Mm. Um, I wasn't necessarily a Dr. Seuss kid. My book on Jim Henson, like I was a Muppet kid growing up. And George Lucas, I was a Star Wars kid growing yeah. up. Dr. Seuss, you know, I didn't learn to read with Dr. Seuss books. I, I learned actually to read with comic books and mm. with reprints of Mad Magazine and things like that. Dr. Seuss to me was the dentist office book. Mm. Um, that was where I got to see. They always felt kind of oddly special to me, I think, in that way, because I, you know, I, I didn't get to read them until I was at the doctor's office or at a friend's house or something like that, but I didn't learn to read with him. Um, so, I, so I approached him almost, you know, with not a lot of advanced knowledge. So it was, it was my journey as well. And I hope that's reflected in the book that I, you know, I was enjoying reading about him and learning about him as I went along on this. The, the section in there when he becomes the editor and president and editor-in-chief of Beginner Books, which happens after The Cat in the Hat is a big hit. Uh, and he's sort of in charge of an imprint of books for Random House that produce all these classic books that we think of, some of which aren't Dr. Seuss books, something like Go Dog Go mm. uh, or Are You My Mother, like books that people really love that they think are Dr. Seuss books but really aren't. But he was the editor of them, and they came out on his imprint. You know, that was all all new to me. But again, really watching the way he was working and watching the way he worked his other other writers and artists who came in here, uh, people like the Berenstains who loved him, even as they were slightly terrified of him because he was <laughs> such a perfectionist and, you know, wanted them to storyboard as well. It was like really trying to teach them how this worked. So, you know, so it was a real journey for me as well. I got to reread and in some cases read for the first time every Dr. Seuss book and call that work, which is a pretty great <laughs> job. You know, I got to go to the archives. His, his papers are held in a number of places because he was at Dartmouth a lot of his early years and a lot of his early correspondence is at Dartmouth. So it was lovely to go out there and, you know, see stuff. And again, as biographers and people who are historians, we love to see things in the original handwriting. And he did a lot of stuff that he had in his original handwriting that he would just save. And he did what he called cat notes, where he had this notepad with a cat in a hat printed on. And he Mm. would just dash off quick notes to people. And I had people like Mike Frith, who was one of his editors at Random House in the 60s, when Mike was a young man, still has copies of these cat notes in his own personal (laughs) files that I got to see. So, uh, so, you know, it was it was a lot of fun learning about him, but, and, and a lot of work, um, you know, his papers are at Dartmouth, they're at Columbia, they're at uh, the university of California, San Diego. So, so you've got to kind of move around to pick up pieces of him and, and find him out there. And a lot of his work, well, I don't want to say a lot, but a lot of his early work, um, hasn't been collected. So you have to kind of find it, mm. uh, go through old newspapers through, you know, things like newspapers.com and, you know, ancestry and things like that. Go through and find some of these old, the old, um, you know, life magazines that have a lot of his old ad work in them. So, 
lot of it was detective work as well. You know, you, you said something that I really identified with. I didn't necessarily grow up reading a lot of his books. You, you sort of created a memory or reminded me of a memory, I should say, when you talked about it for you being the, the doctor's office book. I, I distinctly remember going to the dentist or the doctor and seeing Dr. Seuss books there uh, in, in the waiting room. I'd forgotten all about that. But but not having read a lot of his work growing up made reading about him no less enjoyable, for sure. I absolutely loved the book. Um, what What is ahead for you that you're working on? now. Can, can you tell us or do you know? No, I, I actually don't know. This is the longest I've ever been without knowing what was coming next. And I don't like it one bit. Um, <laughs> Sorry for bringing that up. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Uh, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking and I'm, 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 you know, starting to have conversations with my agent, with my editor, similarly we did when we came on Dr. Seuss. I've not done a woman yet. So I'm trying to think along there. I haven't done a musician yet. So mm. I'm thinking about that. I'm a huge Beatles fan. And I keep trying to pitch Ringo, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I can't, I can't quite make that one land. Um, so I'm, so I'm not sure yet. I'm hoping within the next couple of months, to, to figure that out. But uh, yeah, like I said, this is the, the longest point I've had. I always joke that um, as biographers, we have a big biographers conference every year. And I said, it, I always say it's one of the few conferences you can attend along with probably the adult video awards where you can walk up to someone and say, who are you doing? <laughs> it's the first time in a long time I haven't been able to answer that question. We mm. love being able to answer that. Wow. Well, the book again is called Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel and the Making of an American Imagination. His name is Brian J. Jones. It's been a delight to uh, chat with you, Brian. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day and, and spending it with us and sharing with us a bit about uh, about Dr. Seuss's life. We really appreciate it. Now, Jeff, what a pleasure. It's a really fun subject, so I'm glad we got to talk about it. In addition to Brian's biography on Dr. Seuss, I encourage you to check out both George Lucas, A Life, and Jim Henson, A Biography. I'm looking forward to diving into those myself. For links to those books and more, you can check out the show notes page for this episode. You'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 282 for episode 282. If you're not already on the Read to Lead podcast email list, I'd love for you to join. We keep you up to date on what's happening here at the Read to Lead podcast and what's to come. You can sign up right now on the homepage for the podcast. That's at readtoleadpodcast.com. Just look for the sign up form to the right of the page. Got questions, comments, or feedback on the show? Well, you can write me directly. That address is jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Well, that's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 